what he means by the fact that they have twisted, they've mutilated, they've abused the doctrine of God's grace in this way. And the first example that he gives in verse 5, he says, I want to remind you, though you already know these things. Now, this is important. We need to understand that the people that Jude is writing to, they are familiar with the stories he's about to reference. Now, we're going to go back and look at them in case some of you are unfamiliar with them. But his audience knows these stories. He says, I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. Friends, just like Israel, we cannot presume upon God's favor. That simply because he has shown us favor, that it means there's nothing we can ever do that might threaten that favor upon our lives. If we look back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, we're going to read a bit about what exactly Jude is talking about in these children of Israel. Now, I hope that you're familiar with the fantastic stories of how God rescued a people out of Egypt. How he turned a group of familial slaves into a nation. And he pulled them out of the most powerful country in the world, out from under the reign of Pharaoh, by his outstretched right hand, performing incredible miracles. God showed off. And now, as he has led them out of Egypt, at every obstacle, he has come through. When they face the Red Sea, it's nothing for God. What does he do? He just parts it. As they travel, their clothing doesn't wear out. Their food and water are provided for them. And now they have come to the, the border of entry into the land that God has promised them as this nation that he's delivered out of Egypt. He's shown incredible favor to them. And it says in chapter 13, starting with verse 25, this is after they've sent scouts into that land. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit they had taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. 
We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. God has done incredible miracles in bringing this people out of slavery from the most powerful country in the world at that time. He has parted a sea on their behalf. He has led them by cloud and fire supernaturally. And the spies report is this. The people in the land God said he wants to give us, they're too big. They're giants. Not possible. We can't defeat them. Was it possible for a sea to part? Was it possible for water to turn to blood? Was it possible for plague after plague to be sent? But the people are too big. And we can't go in. We can't take it. Chapter 14 says, Then the whole community began weeping aloud, and they cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. Listen to what they're saying. If only we had died in Egypt, or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Then they plotted among themselves, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Are you hearing this? The people are too big, and God is just going to let us die. So we would prefer to go back into the slavery that he delivered us from. We want a new leader, one who won't lead us into the promised land that God has set aside for us. No, we want a leader who will take us back into the cross space, into the dark. That's what we want. Because this God who's rescued and delivered us, he's actually malicious and he's just going to kill us and he's not going to look out for our wives and our children. I mean, are you hearing the blasphemous level of the, the defamation here, the slander against the character of God? Has God done anything that would give evidence that that's his character? No. Verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down on the ground before the whole community of Israel. Two of the men who had explored the land, Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, tore their clothing. They said to all the people of Israel, The land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It is a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord. And don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are only helpless prey to us. They have no protection. But the Lord is with us. 
Don't be afraid of them. Joshua and Caleb, the two voices of reason, the only two of this entire generation, the only two of the spies that are willing to tell the people, look, it's the exact opposite. God is with us. These giants have no protection. They're like our prey. This is, this is a guaranteed thing because of the God that we serve. Verse 10, but the whole community began to talk about stoning Joshua and Caleb. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites at the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? Think you could almost translate that. How long will these people presume upon their relationship with me? Will they never believe me? Even after all the miraculous signs I have done among them, I will disown them and destroy them with a plague. Then I will make you into a nation greater, greater and mightier than they are. So the people start to talk about stoning to death. The only two people who are willing to speak on the Lord's behalf. And then God shows up, his glorious presence. That's one of the things that people have seen happen as well. The Lord shows up at the tabernacle and he tells Moses, I'm done. I'm just going to destroy them all and start over with you. Because they still won't believe me. They still won't trust me. Now Moses begins to intercede for the people. He pleads with God not to just kill them all with the plague. We're going to pick back up after his intercession in verse 20. Then the Lord said, I will pardon them as you have requested. But as surely as I live and as surely as the earth is filled with the Lord's glory, not one of these people will ever enter that land. They have all seen my glorious presence. And the miraculous signs I performed both in Egypt and in the wilderness. But again and again, they have tested me by refusing to listen to my voice. They will never even see the land I swore to give their ancestors. None of those who have treated me with contempt will ever see it. But my servant Caleb has a different attitude than the others have. He has remained loyal to me, so I will bring him into the land he explored. His descendants will possess their full share of that land. Now turn around and don't go on toward the land where the Amalekites and Canaanites live. Tomorrow you must set out for the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. So God relents in response to the intercession. He says, I'm not just going to kill everybody right now with the plague. But these people are not going to see the land. And he sends them back in the direction they want to go, back towards the Red Sea, not to go back into slavery in Egypt, but to do what? To wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And so all of that generation would die off. Verse 26, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long must I put up with this wicked community and its complaints about me? 
Yes, I have heard the complaints the Israelites are making against me. Now tell them this, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. You will all drop dead in this wilderness. Because you complained against me, every one of you who is 20 years old or older and was included in the registration will die. You will not enter and occupy the land I swore to give you. The only exceptions will be Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. Skip to verse 36. The ten men Moses had sent to explore the land, the ones who incited rebellion against the Lord with their bad report, were struck dead with a plague before the Lord. Of the twelve who had explored the land, only Joshua and Caleb remained alive. When Moses reported the Lord's words to all the Israelites, the people were filled with grief. Then they got up early the next morning and went to the top of the range of hills. Let's go, they said. We realize that we have sinned, but now we are ready to enter the land the Lord has promised us. But Moses said, why are you now disobeying the Lord's orders to return to the wilderness? It won't work. Do not go up into the land now. You will only be crushed by your enemies because the Lord is not with you. When you face the Amalekites and Canaanites in battle, you will be slaughtered. The Lord will abandon you because you have abandoned the Lord. But the people defiantly pushed ahead toward the hill country, even though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's covenant left the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in those hills came down and attacked them and chased them back as far as Hormah. These people presumed upon the favor of God. Now we realize. Now we know we've sinned. We'll take the first offer. We don't like the second one so much. Wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and then dropping dead doesn't sound pleasant. So yeah, we'll go in and take the land. We'll face the giants. God's like, no, that's not how it works. You didn't believe me. You didn't trust me. You keep testing. You keep complaining. And there's consequences. You can't presume upon very people that God rescued, he destroyed. That's a solemn thought. In spite of all God had done for them, all but two of the Exodus generation still didn't trust God enough to listen and obey his voice of authority. And because of that, it brought about their death and destruction in the wilderness. Friends, what will it take for you to trust me? Look at your life. What seas has he parted? What miracles has he worked? How has he pursued you with that reckless love that we've sung about? It's an incredible love. 
And God wants to pour out favor on you as his sons and daughters, but we cannot presume upon that favor and continue to test and refuse to listen and refuse to trust. Jude says that God destroyed them because they didn't remain faithful. Or in other translations, it says because they still did not believe. What will it take? There will come a limit to how much favor and blessing God will pour out if people perpetually refuse to trust him. And trust looks like obedience. Trust looks like submission to authority. Trust says God is good. God is able. God is all-knowing. God loves me. So if he says don't, I don't want to. If he says go, my feet begin to move. Trust results in obedience. Friends, take the warning. We don't want to be like these people who experience favor upon favor but still refuse to believe. What will it take for you to trust him? Don't presume upon his grace. Don't presume upon his favor. He is patient. He is merciful. But he's also judge. Look at verse 6. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belong. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. Now there's a little bit of mystery and bizarre surrounding this verse quickly cover it. But what I want you to hear is this. Just like these angels, we cannot presume upon what limited authority God has shared with us. We can't let the power go to our heads. Only God has limitless authority. He is sovereign. He, in his goodness, has given us a limited amount of personal sovereignty. He, in his uh, desire to allow us to steward the earth and to steward his work, has even shared some of his authority with us. If you are a parent, God has shared some of his authority with you, and you're to use that authority to parent your children in the Lord. If you are a servant among God's people in some form of ministry or leadership, God has shared a portion of authority with you for you to steward. But only God's authority is without limit. Ours is most definitely limited. And we cannot presume upon it and let power go to our heads. Angels were given authority. And you know what happened when they presumed upon that authority and began to act like it was without limit? They were chained in darkness to wait for the day of judgment. If God will do that to angels who were in positions of authority, how do you think he'll respond to people that he'd allow to be in positions of authority who then abuse and presume upon it? Now the context for this seems to be from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Before we read them, a little bit of explanation. 
Like I said, Jude is writing to people who are familiar with the things he's talking about. And this verse echoes some of the wording that is used in a book called First Enoch that goes into more detail about the circumstances surrounding what we're about to read in Genesis 6. First Enoch has never been considered part of scriptural canon, neither by the Jewish people nor by Christians. But it seems that the audience that Jude is writing to is very familiar with the writings of First Enoch. We know that because later in his letter, he quotes from the book of First Enoch. So it's safe to assume that he knows that the people he's writing to are reading this through the lens of their knowledge of this apocalyptic book of First Enoch. And so First Enoch elaborates on this story that we'll read from Scripture in Genesis 6. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. It says, Then the people began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. In those days and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. First Enoch elaborates on this story and says that the sons of God referred to angels who left their position of authority in heaven to pursue forbidden sexual relationships with women and produced offspring that were half angel, half human, that were giants. And that the punishment for this defiance of God's authority is that they were put in chains in darkness to await the judgment. Now, Genesis does not say that. Genesis is very mysterious. There are people that have taken a lot of different approaches to interpreting this passage. I'm not saying that is the way to understand this. But it is definitely most likely the way that Jude was expecting the people to understand what he is writing. So these angels who were in a position of authority let it go to their head. And they decided that they could treat the creation of God however they wanted. Thinking that they could get away with it. Only God has limitless authority. Any attempt to operate outside the limits he gives us will keep us in the darkness. In the crawl space. Rather than being kept in love, which Jude tells us that we're to be, until the judgment. We move from the result of death and destruction when we presume upon God's favor, to darkness and chains and judgment if we presume upon what limited authority he has shared with us. Have you found the joy of living under God's authority? There's a whole lot of joy to be found in just being contented right there. Whatever authority I have, God, is just the authority that you have stewarded me with. You don't need any more of that. You're the one who calls the shots. 
The enemy would love for us to think that joy is found in usurping authority and taking charge of our lives, but that doesn't lead to joy. It leads to darkness and judgment. Joy is found in contentedly submitting under God's authority because he's good. We can trust him. So what he tells us to do, there's joy there. It's the way we were meant to live. Look at verse 7. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and served as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. Friends, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, we cannot presume upon our freedom and our moral autonomy. God's given it to us. We have choices. We can choose to do wrong. But just because he's given us the freedom doesn't mean that it goes okay when we choose wrong. We can't presume upon that freedom. We look in Genesis 19. We'll look a bit at this story as well. Genesis chapter 19. We'll read verses 4 and 5 first. This is just describing the circumstances of Lot to be rescued out of Sodom and Gomorrah before its destruction. So a bit of background. God has come to Abraham. And because Abraham, he was a person who believes and trusts God, trust his character. He's been counted as righteous and has become a friend of God. And so as a friend of God, God shares with him what's about to happen. That Sodom and Gomorrah's sin has become so great that they have to be destroyed. But there's a problem because Abraham's nephew Lot is living in these cities. And so God and Abraham discuss together, and remember Abraham tries to kind of bargain with the Lord, for the sake of how many righteous people would you spare the cities? What it really comes down to is that there's just not any righteous people there other than Lot. And so God sends angels to get Lot out. And so when Lot sees the angels, we don't even know for sure if he recognizes them as angels or not, but he offers them hospitality, and he knows that they need to have a place to stay. He knows that's really important, because where he lives is so wicked that they would not be safe if they didn't have a home to go to before nightfall. And apparently, they weren't even all that safe after. Verse 4, but before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so we can have sex with them. It's pretty bleak. These cities have become so fixated on their freedom to do whatever their desires led them to do that they're ready to rape strange men who have come into the city. As a mob, they're ready to commit this act. Jude says that their perversion, their sexual immorality, it was, it was widespread, it was all forms. 
we look at verse 17. This is after the angels have pulled Lot out and his, his daughters and his wife. It says, when they were safely out of the city, one of the angels ordered, run for your lives and don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. Skipping to verse 23. Lot reached the village just as the sun was rising over the horizon. Then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them, along with the other cities and villages of the plain, wiping out all the people and every bit of vegetation. But Lot's wife looked back as she was following behind him, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Abraham got up early that morning and hurried out to the place where he had stood in the Lord's presence. He looked out across the plain toward Sodom and Gomorrah and watched as columns of smoke rose from the cities like smoke from a furnace. These kinds of stories are not ones that we genuinely enjoy about our God. He's a God of reckless love, but he's a holy God. God has all authority. God has placed limits on human behavior. And the refusal to live within those limits will bring big consequences. We can't presume upon his goodness. Well, he's a good God. He's a God of love. So everybody can just do whatever they want. And God loves us, and one day we'll go to heaven. It's not what Scripture teaches. It's not what's real. It's not what's true. We can't presume upon our freedom to do what we want, as though there's no consequences involved. It says that the consequences for destruction by fire, and specifically that it serves as a warning of the eternal fire, God's judgment. You see, there's been a progression. It's interesting, these stories, they're not cited in chronological order. They're cited in ever-increasing severity of punishment. So first you have wander in the wilderness for 40 years and die. Then you have chained in a dark prison for the remainder of human time to face judgment. And now thirdly, eternal fire. See how it just keeps I wonder, have you found the peace of living within God's limits for your behavior? There's joy in understanding his authority, and there's peace once you begin to understand that I walk this straight and narrow path because God said, don't do that, don't touch that. God said, I have a plan for human sexuality. It's only to be expressed one way within a heterosexual marriage. Period. Anything outside of that is outside of the limits he's placed. There is not peace there. Are you free to go there? Sure. But you better not presume upon that freedom. Because there's a consequence. Friends, we can't presume upon the grace and goodness of our God. He loves us. He has incredible patience and mercy with us. 
We better not get to the place where we just assume God loves me, he'll forgive me, it's all good. Look at verse 8. In the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams, live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. We'll get to the scoff at supernatural beings the next time we come back to Jude. But it says they're living immoral lives and they're defying authority. We've seen that. These teachers that Jude is addressing and he's comparing them to all of these stories from the Old Testament. But it says where they get their authority, their supposed authority, they claim it from their dreams. I had a dream. And God said it was all good for me to do this or that. I had a vision. And God's grace says this is fine. What's your source of authority for your life? Because you have to pick one. Could God speak through dreams? Absolutely. But are dreams the source of authority for our life? No, because dreams could come from elsewhere. This is where our authority is. This defines our limits. If we start to go somewhere else to find our source of authority under which we live, the consequences are scary. We don't want to be there with this, these false teachers. We don't want to presume upon our perception of God's love and his grace. We want to live under his authority as people who trust him. So this morning, I know this is a hard word. Jude is a hard book. I told the worship team this morning, I committed that I would preach the whole counsel of God. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. But it's truth and we need it, and especially in this day we need it. So the Lord would ask you these questions. What will it take for you to trust me? Because if you don't trust me, you'll never submit to my authority. Israel saw miracle after miracle, and they still didn't believe that God had their goodness, their best, at the forefront. They didn't, they didn't go there. They didn't, they didn't trust him. I was asking you, what will it take? Because I'm trying over and over and over again to show you that you can trust me, because I need you to submit to my authority. What authority are you claiming dictates your life? And really ask yourself that question. How do you decide what you do? How do you, how do you discern where the limits are for your life? If you really reckon with that question, God says, I've, I've given you those limits under my authority, but you have to choose to place yourself there. And are you willing to learn to trust the authority of Jesus so much that there's no turning back? Children of Israel got all the faith authority. But they're never ready to go back to the 
angels were serving God in place of the fool. They gave it all up. Sodom and Gomorrah pushed and pushed and pushed against God's grace and his goodness to the point of no return. And Lot's wife was on her way out. But she turned back. Are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to trust his limits? Are you willing to submit to his authority? You know, that's what it means to follow Jesus. It's not just saying I associate myself with the religion of Christianity. I agree with the statements of fact that Jesus came and died and rose again. No, it means I'm going to follow Jesus as my voice of authority from here until I enter the promised land. Would you stand with me as we sing this song of the church? It's so simple. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Or maybe like Caleb and Joshua. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Thank you. 
Oh, 